We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give you a bit of a family history. I'm going to show you a family tree. To some of you, it will make much sense. To some of you, you might be like, hey, that's new to me. And that's great. But we're going to start the family tree in the book of Jacob. Again, be flipping to Hebrews 5 while we do this. But we're going to start the tree in Jacob. This is the Jacob who had his name changed to Israel. This is why they're called the Israelites. He's going to have 12 sons. And we're going to look at that tree that brings about those sons. And the reason why is because if you've been with us for any amount of time, that is the last week or the last couple months, starting in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, the author has declared Jesus as the high priest, which is a Gentile I have no problem accepting. It's the first time I'd ever heard the phrase high priest. It makes sense to me. I can accept that. But this book wasn't written to a Gentile like myself. It was written to the Hebrews. That is, Jewish people who by descendancy and lineage uh, and by faith were Jewish, but had come to realize the fulfilling of those promises in the Old Testament in Jesus, the Messiah. For them to hear the phrase, Jesus is the high priest, is going to be a bit of a stumbling block, quite honestly. And we're going to look at why that is and one of the purposes for why this book and particularly this chapter were written to help them get over that stumbling block. But here's why I might show you why it's a stumbling block. Jacob, as you might know, worked for his uncle Laban for seven years. Uh, He desired to marry the younger sister, Rachel, but Laban tricked him, and he ended up marrying the older sister, Leah. He had to work another seven years to, in fact, marry the younger sister, Rachel. Uh, They both had maidservants, if you don't know. Leah Zilpah was Leah's servant, and Bilhah was Rachel's servant. When he started to grow his family, he started there with Leah. She had the oldest, which is Reuben. Simeon, Levi, and Judah. After some time, uh, Rachel uh, was barren at this point. She couldn't have a child, and so she said, hey, if I can't have a child here, have my maidservant Bilhah. And Bilhah then bore him two children, Dan and Naphtali. And then Leah got kind of jealous and said, hey, here's my maidservant. Uh, You can have Zilpah. And then so they had on that side Gad, which makes you to the the seventh son, and Asher. Then... um, If you notice here, Issachar was able to be her fifth son. Her womb opened back up. She had a fifth and a sixth son, in fact, Zebulun. So now you're at six from Leah, and you got Zilpah's got two, and Bilhah's got two, so you have a total of 10. We know that he, in fact, has 12 sons. So Joseph was the second to youngest, and then, of course, we have Benjamin, who was the youngest son. So that's their family tree. You might know how it works out. We have the 12 sons, but the 12 sons don't line up with the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes are because Joseph got a double portion. He was such a stud in the Old Testament in his time. Uh, you know, his brothers, these other 11 guys, had thrown him into a pit, uh, left him to die, sold him as a slave. He was amazing in, in Potiphar's house. He translated dreams for the baker and the butler. He translated Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh exalted him to the second in the land. Uh, quite a faithful young man. And for that, his faithfulness, um, God gave him a double portion. That double portion was passed to his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so you're looking here, and you see, well, there's 13 total. If you have 12 sons, and one of them bows out, Joseph, and gives a double portion to Manasseh and Ephraim, you have 13 children, if you will. Know this, that the tribe of Levi became the priestly tribe. So you have 12 tribes, but Levi being that 13th priestly tribe. Does that make sense to everybody in the room? So you're going to have to know that and understand that maybe that's new to us. Maybe you have some familiarity with this. But to the Israelites, 
to the Hebrews, this is like in their, they're ingrained in this. This made perfect sense to them. They knew that growing up. And so from Levi's line, um, he had Moses. Moses would be his great-grandson. That is, Levi had a child, then a grandchild, and then that grandchild had Moses. Moses, as we know, had a brother named Aaron. And it's from Aaron's line that we get the idea of a priestly tribe. And I'm going to tell you this in Exodus 28, and we're going to pray in just a moment. But God speaks to Moses and says, Bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priest to me. Aaron, at this time he had these sons Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And then he goes on in Exodus 28, even to start at 29, he talks about the anointing of them. They get the priestly garments, the ephod and the turban, and then the diadem, the crown. And in verse 29, verse 9, he says, You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. You shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And so going back to the family tree, you'll see that Aaron, from his line only, for perpetual statute, that means like forever, will come priests, and only from his line. You can't come from Issachar, you can't come from Dan and Naphtali. The lineage was through Aaron and his son to be a priest. Now, to most of us, that makes uh, perfect sense. I'm going to fill in a couple things in the timeline, just some Old Testament things. It takes us a second. But if you notice here, Benjamin, uh, King Saul comes from the line of Benjamin. When he gets anointed, uh, he says, what, me? Are you sure? I come from like the lowliest of tribes. I come from Benjamin. Are you sure I'm supposed to be the king? Yep, you're the king. So the first king we know comes from Benjamin, but the second king comes over here from the line of Judah, which is King David's line. And we know who else comes from King David's line. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, comes from that line. And so in the past few chapters, that is chapter 2, 3, and 4, Jesus was declared as the high priest. Do you see the dilemma for someone who's grown up in the Jewish faith? Wait, how is Jesus... The guy from Judah, how is he a priest? So the Hebrews are just down here. The Hebrews are descendants from these 12 tribes, right? They're all down here. Um, I put, kind of put a bunch of arrows. They come from all these different tribes. And they look and they say, that, that doesn't quite add up. That, that shouldn't be. How is that so? And so Hebrews chapter 5 is there to state the case, if you will. You can call it the You've heard of the case for Christ, the case for Easter. This is the case for the high priest. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you that we've gathered here today to hear from you and have your word be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. And so we pray for the soil of our heart to be softened and good soil, that it would, you'd sow the seeds right now into our heart to bear much fruit. But this time is yours we come to honor you. We come to exalt you. We come to know you deeper and better. We come to love you, Lord. And so honor this time. Bless this time. We know you're here with us. You've never left us. You never forsake us. You're here. We just say together that we love you, and this time is yours. Please rule and reign. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 5.1 starts like this. So if you don't have a Bible, if you're following along, I move pretty quickly. I talk pretty quickly, I've been told. Uh, I will have most, most of everything that I'm going to say will be up on the board behind me. So you're happy to look up there or follow along down here. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version today. Verse 1 says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices 
for sins. What that's simply saying is that God appointed a mediator from man. What does that mean? He could have had an angel be the mediator between God and man. Again, you have a holy, perfect God trying to bridge a gap between a sinful man. And he says he's chosen a priest from the man to be that mediator, to be the gap filler between the two. And what was the priest's jobs? They were to offer both gifts and sacrifices. The sacrificial system, we understand uh, a bit of that. We've read through Exodus together uh, on Wednesday night, went through Leviticus. We, we know this in Leviticus to describe the sacrifices. And again, the difference in sacrifices and offerings, sacrifices and gifts would be sacrifices were the animals. Anything that was slain was considered a sacrifice. And so here you have in Leviticus 3, it says, the priest shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. So the priest's job was to make atonement. It's a fancy Christianese word, right? It just simply means I break it up into simple, it means at one mint. You have two entities, a perfect and holy God and a sinful man. The priest's job was to make them at one, to regain that fellowship that was lost in the garden. And so if you look here again, um, moving on to the gifts, the sacrifices, I think we get that. We've gone through that system. Again, the, simply, the simplicity of the gifts is this, Leviticus 6 You'll see these other things that were offered to the Lord. We had sin offerings and blood offerings. Here you have grain offerings, other offerings that were offered. It says, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour and the grain off of the grain offering with its oil and all the incense that's on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma and its memorial offering to the Lord. So simply put again, gifts and sacrifices were the job of the priest. He takes the offerings that were taken like a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord that brought at one mint, that covered the sins of himself, his family, and all the people of Israel, and made it so a fellowship could happen between a perfect and holy God and a sinful man. In verse 2, it says that this priest, that's the he, can deal gently with, I try not to take too much offense about this, but it seems to fit for me, the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. Means the priest can have compassion and empathy on all the knuckleheads in the camp, because he too himself is, in fact, a knucklehead. Makes perfect sense to me. I get that. Seem to relate quite well to that, and I'm, I'm appreciative of that. So again, he's just pointing out the fact that there's a flaw, however, in the priest. The priest, yes, awesome that he can have sympathy and empathy, but it's because he's, he's, he's like that. He, he gets it from the inside out. Takes one to know one, as they say. In verse 3, and because of it, because of his weakness, because of his sin, it's, it's a, it, it, sin as well, because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And we look back, back when I was here a few months ago, we looked at that uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that is the start of the Jewish calendar where they would have uh, the sacrificial systems of bulls and goats and, and goats getting away and goats staying and blood being sprinkled everywhere. Uh, quite a ritual thing that happens between the, the, in the holy place and the holy of holies uh, one time a year for forgiveness of sins. We look at that very briefly. Instead of reading all of Leviticus 16, I picked three verses that sort of cut and dry uh, that you'll get it. In verse six here, it says, Aaron shall offer the bull 
for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Again, at atonement, at one mint is needed because he too is separated from the holy God. In verse 11, it goes on to say, Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Move on to verse 17. It says, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. So that's how the priests function. And really the high priest functioned pretty much one day a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for himself, his household, and for all the people of Israel. I always love this verse. This verse seems to strike home with me. It says, no one takes the honor to himself. It means nobody signed up to be priest or high priest, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. In fact, God made it that way. He said, Aaron, it's got to come from you. And every time you have a son, they're, just, they're in the family business. They're a priest. They're appointed just by birth and lineage. No one will sign up to be a priest if not appointed. And I started to think about that a little bit. And I was like, no one wants to be the high priest. Why, why would that be? And I got this analogy for you. I started thinking about just regular job postings. Understand the priestly position is a job. The high priest is also a job. If you have a regular job posting, an honest job posting, will have pros and cons. It'll list some of the things that are good about the job and maybe some of the things that make it not so attractive, but they'll lay it out for you. A regular job posting might have for you know, pros, besides your salary and the job description, it'll say, hey, you're going to get medical, dental, vision. You're going to get a 401k. You might be blessed with, blessed with what we call PTO or paid time off. You might get a company car. There's all kinds of good things that come with this job but they're gonna be real with you. At the very end, and maybe some finer print, they're gonna say, there are some cons. Maybe you have to be willing to work really long hours. Maybe you have to take the graveyard shift. Maybe it's you know, three twelves or four tens. It's a long, long day. You must be able to lift 100 pounds. I saw this as a real one. Yeah, I lift 100 pounds, maybe once in my life, but like day after day, that sounds terrible. And even worse, maybe a job posting will say, must be willing to work near or around cats. I was like, what? around cats. No, like most people aren't going to sign up for this job, but maybe a few will. There's probably still a few people in the world that say, hey, you know what? The pros outweigh the cons. I would sign up for that job. But if you look at the high priest job posting, understand this. It too has some pros and cons. On the pro side, you get to be the mediator between a holy God and a sinful man. That's pretty cool. There's like one of you in the world. It's awesome. You're guaranteed job security for you and your family. Every time you have a child, they've got a job. That's pretty nice. I don't know if you've got any homeless, or not homeless, but unemployed children just still in the basement. Like, hey, my kids have a job. That's great. And honestly, if you're the high priest, most of your work is just one day a year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's the only day you got to put the stuff on and go to work. That's, I got to work one day a year. It's pretty cool. But here are the cons. Oh, and by the way, there's really good barbecue. Like you literally got to eat the fat and the trimmings and all the things that are laid on the altar, like really good barbecue. Like every day, just eating barbecue. That's a good pro, right? The cons, however, is a chance. One day a year, you die. <laughs> that's, that's the con to this job. And so now you see why it says no one takes the honor to himself right? No one is signing up for that job where one day a year, you could die. 
And we know it's like, God's not just saying that because if you know how it, how it works out, Aaron has those two sons. We listed Nadab and Abihu. They were messing around. Uh, you can insinuate they were probably drinking on the job. They came in, brought some profane fire. They were struck down. They, in fact, died on the job as priest. So it's, it's a serious job. No one takes the honor to himself. Even Aaron, they were appointed. So here we have unappoint, un, uh, people not choosing to be high priests, but appointed. It goes on in verse 5 in Hebrews to say, So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, this is the father saying to him, he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, he's quoting Psalm 2-7 there. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110.4. And it's this verse is going to be one of the main focuses that we're going to talk about today. Um, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you were reading the Bible, like just starting in Genesis and, and, and going through, you, you would have heard this name once, once in a little passage uh, over in Genesis, and you'd be reading the rest of the, the Torah, and you would just not ever hear this name again. It's not a name like Moses and Aaron that comes up repeatedly, repeatedly. It, and Melchizedek would be a very, what we consider a minor character. His name comes up once. There were hundreds of people whose names come up way more often than this. And so we should look, however, at this Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? Why is he mentioned here? What's that all about? And so I asked that question, who's Melchizedek? Well, we start by breaking down his name. His name, if you don't know, uh, is the combining of two Hebrew words, one of which is melech, which means king. The other is sedek, which means righteousness. His name literally means the king of righteousness. And so I'm going to give you this. This is the timeline that we looked at. We, we flushed this out together to start our day. I'm going to squish it. I'm going to take it from the top and just bring it down. So don't get, you know, nothing changed. I just squished it. Because we started the family tree at Jacob, I have to now go up the family tree to make sense of who Melchizedek is and how he fits in. You know that Jacob had a dad. His dad was Isaac. You know, Isaac has a dad. His name is Abram, turned into Abraham. And so it's the Melchizedek we're going to read about who is a contemporary with Abraham. They walked on the planet at the same time. In fact, they met. They've hung out together before in the Bible. It shows that. And so these two are directly, uh, they know each other. They've hung out together before. And we're going to look at what that looks like. But what's being made here in that Psalm 110 reference, in Hebrews it's, it's stated, that Jesus is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is not coming from this Levitical line. He's coming from the line of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is going to break it down as to why it is it's like that and why it's the better way to be from the line of Melchizedek. Okay? So he appears again, we talked about once in the, New, in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis 14. You can flip there if you want. It'll be much faster if, if, if you watch up on screen with me. Um, Genesis 14, verse 1 um, I'm going to put the first verse up here, and this is just a little embarrassing moment. Uh, I had read this my whole life, uh, and I just read names off pretty quickly. You got Amraphel and Ariok and uh, what I was calling uh, Cheddarlemer. I, I, I kind of get a southern accent when you say it, Cheddarlemer, uh, and title. And I was like, Cheddarlemer, Cheddarlemer, Cheddarlemer. It sounded fine to me. It made sense. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other kings, you know, four kings and five kings. And I thought, hey, before I get up on stage, 
maybe it's not pronounced cheddar lemur. Maybe I should just like, and I thought it was cheddar lemur, like, like, like a lemur that likes cheddars. Like I was like cheddar lemur. And um, I have a history with this. My wife makes fun of me all the time. There's uh, an old book that came out. It's not that old. You all heard of it. It's called Harry Potter. I remember I was reading Harry Potter and I read the first four books before the movie ever came out. And I was reading about it. And you remember that there's, there's some main characters. You got Harry Potter, you've got Ron Weasley, and then you've got who I called for four years, Hermione. Hermione Granger. And I remember talking to my buddies. I'm like, oh, Hermione. Hermione and Harry are going to get married. Together. Hermione, Hermione. And people just let me say it for years. And the movie comes out. And apparently it's pronounced Hermione. And I'm like, Hermione, how would you get that? And so it would not be unusual for me to just call things Cheddar Lemur. Um, so it's not Cheddar Lemur. It's pronounced um, Ketter Lemur. Ketter Lemur. And so to me, it's way too many syllables. Cheddar Lemur, it just rolls off the tongue. So you might hear me refer to it as Cheddar Lemur. No disrespect to the man. Uh, I just have been, it was, it was that way in my head forever. I still read it, stay Hermione in my head too. But understand when I say this, there's a bunch of kings. I'm going to read verses one and two to you. And it, it's, it's just names and places that we've never heard of. It's not going to make a lot of sense. I, I felt the need to bring some visuals in to help with some of these guys. And so you've got these... Um, I'll read it. It says, And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariat, king of Elasser, uh, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. They made war. So those are four kings. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. His name's Zoar. There's a test after. You have to spell them correctly as well. Like that's like, what? what's that called? So, but, but you have those. You have four kings about to make war with five other kings. And that leads to the very simple question. Do you know what it's called when four kings decide to make war with five other kings? If you grew up in the 80s, WWF style, it's called the Royal Rumble, which is great. Um, but I'm going to take that theme. It's going to make sense for you a little bit here. Watch, if you read the, don't laugh. But it's going to make a lot more sense if you look at it in terms of wrestlers from the WWE slash WWF era. Here you have, I'm not going to use the Royal Rumble voice, you know, Amraphel, king of Sinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, Chetalimer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim. Those four guys are going to go against these five guys. Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, Shinab, excuse me, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and Zoar, king of Bela. If you start to picture the battle like these four guys against these five guys, it'll actually make a lot more sense for you. So we're going to leave that up just for a little bit as I go through some of the battle things. But again, take this verse and just turn it into this, and it makes perfect sense. But I'm going to tell you the battle first with this up on the screen and refer to some of these things, and then we're going to read through the battle together because it's a Wednesday night Bible study, and we're here to read the words, so we're going to read through it together, but it will make a lot more sense if I tell you the battle. So what happens is Chetalimer, Chetalimer uh, was, was kind of the big dog in town. He was conquering everybody, and in fact, these other five kings were subservient to him. He had conquered their lands, let them stay in place as rulers, but he was no doubt collecting taxes and just overseeing them. In the 13th year, these guys said, enough is enough. We're kings. We don't want to be under another king. We want to have our own rule and reign. And so they say, hey, king, we want to meet you in a, for a battle in the Valley of Sidim. Let's go battle it out. So the five kings go up against the fourth kings in this valley. And they meet, and it's a royal rumble. They clash. Well, 
Chetta Lemur, he's a stud, and so he, he wipes the floor with him. He absolutely just, you know, it's The Rock. You don't mess with The Rock, okay? So The Rock puts Brock Lesnar and all his friends in their place, and they, he wins the battle. And in fact, all the guys in red there, the King of Sodom and Gomorrah and those guys, they, they, they hightail it out of there. They run from the battle, and as they're running away, the Valley of Sedim was known to have these tar pits, I just always think of the Brea tar pits. It's the only thing around me that makes perfect sense, but it's basically an open pit of tar. You fall in, you die. So these guys are running away, and they don't realize, oh, tar pit. And most of the warriors of Sodom and Gomorrah, they die in the tar pits. And those who live, they like wend up and flee to the mountains. And so Chedilemer and his buddies, they say, wow, Sodom and Gomorrah, all their warriors are dead. You know what that means? It means we can go plunder all their cities. So they take their armies and their forces and they go to Sodom and Gomorrah and they take all their stuff. They take their food, they take their people, they take their belongings, they gather all the stuff and they take it back to their land, which is how most of the ancient world went. And typically that'd be the end of the story. Somebody conquered somebody, no big deal. Took their people as slaves, took their possessions, took their belongings. That was life back then. With the exception of this time, there happened to be a young man named Lot who was living in Sodom at the time. Yes, that Lot, the same Lot that's in Sodom and Gomorrah later. Well, Lot was living in Sodom, and he got taken captive by Chedorlaomer and those guys. So he's taken captive. Well, he's got an uncle. Lot's uncle is named Abram, later to become Abraham. In fact, this is Genesis 14. His name gets changed in 15 and 16. So this is before that even happens. Now, Abram says, they've got my nephew Lot. I can't stand for that. So he gathers up 300 or so of his buddies, and they go and attack uh, Ketileomer and his friends, and they win. Abram and his buddies go and attack Ketileomer, and they win. All the other kings, there are four or five kingdoms that want to attack them. They lost. Abraham gathers 300 of his buddies, and they win. And so Abram goes, and he gets back Lot. He takes all the stuff that was from Sodom and Gomorrah, takes all the stuff and brings it back to his place. So here you have Abram back with his people, back with all the stuff. He's got everything. Well, what happens is the king of Sodom says, kind of like comes over and he's like, hey, you got my stuff. <laughs> uh, Chedorlaomer and his buddies took all my stuff. I noticed it's like in your living room right now. Can I get my stuff back? At the meeting where the king of Sodom comes over to Abram and asks him for his stuff back, there appears in Genesis 14 a third person who appears for the first time in the Bible and one of the only times in the Bible comes over and it's this guy named Melchizedek, the high priest. He comes over, he's got wine in one hand, bread in the other, and he comes over and he wants to hang out with the king of Sodom and with Abram. Abram says to the king of Sodom, hey, you want your stuff back? I'll give you most of it back. I'm going to give a tenth to the Lord. I'm going to tithe it to the Lord here, to Melchizedek, and you can have the rest of it. I don't want you saying that you made me rich or whatever. I was doing just fine before you came along. I don't need your stuff. You want your stuff? Take your stuff. You can have it. Be on your way. And the king of Sodom goes on his way, and there you have um, Abram uh, and Melchizedek hanging out. And he gave him the tithe, and in return, Melchizedek gives him the blessing. If you track that story... It's going to make a whole lot of sense when we read through it very quickly, okay? So again, you have the four kings made war against the five kings. We talked about that. And again, in verse 3 now, I, I pray by the Holy Spirit, this makes perfect sense. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they, that is the red team, these guys, twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. Again, those guys, these guys rebelled against, the red team rebelled against the blue team. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah 
and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Aor, came out, that's the five, that's the red team, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against uh, Ketaleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, uh, four kings against five. Again, battle royale. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods, so Chedalimer, the blue team again, these guys took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and supply and departed. So they watched their enemies go into the pits. They said, we're going to ransack and pillage the cities and take it back to our place. Verse 12, they also took, talked about Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, now, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. So he went to his buddies and said, hey guys, help me out. When Abram heard his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he's like, hey, Lot, I'm coming to get you. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So they got pursued north. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and all the people. So he got the spoils of the war. Everything that were from Sodom and Gomorrah, he took back with him. Then after his return from the defeat of Ketaleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, again, back from the red team, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, again, the third party that comes in for the first time mentioned, the only time he's mentioned in the, in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Notice this, he's king and priest. This is like perfect typology. He is a representative of who Christ is. Christ is the one who also is, again, from that line of David, from the order of Melchizedek, he is that perfect priest and king. Um, this was a type and foreshadowing of that in the Old Testament. And in verse 19, it says, he blessed him. I, when they use pronouns, I sometimes define them. It's Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of all. So he gave him a tenth of those spoils. That's it. The story literally ends there. Like in Hebrews, they're referencing this story, this Melchizedek is in verse 18, 19, and 20. And he's this profound statement that Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek. What I don't want you to miss is this beautiful, it's a, again, he's a type of Christ here, but the picture here is so beautiful. I'm going to share it with you, and I want you to really catch this. If you're, if you're not listening, please listen into this. This is pretty cool stuff. Melchizedek shows up with two things bread and wine. It's the communion elements. He comes in with elements to fellowship and take communion. And he's got before him two types of people. He's got before him Sodom, the type of the world. And he's got before him Abraham by faith and righteousness. And he comes to both of them and says, hey guys, I'm here. Would you like to sit down and hang out with me? I brought everything needed to have a celebration. And it's the king of Sodom who says, no. Can I please just get my stuff and go? I want the things of the world more than I want a fellowship with the things of God. 
I want my stuff, I'm going to leave. And Abram says, no, let me give these things to God and let me sit down with you. If you remember in Revelation, it says, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of the heart and I knock. Anybody who opens a door and let me in, I will come in and dine with him and him with me. It's here's Melchizedek standing, not even at the door. He's like face to face. Like I brought everything. I'm right here. And you have a perfect topology of some choose the things of the world and depart. And some say, yeah, that's for me. And I just love that beautiful snapshot that you have right here in Genesis 14. And so we come back to Hebrews and he says, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, now he's got to make sense of that to the people. He's, it's been declared. And now this isn't the author just making it up again. He's quoting Psalms that were happening from like before Jesus's time by a thousand years. Like he's saying, "Lo, God put it in the scriptures even to declare it. In Psalm 2, you are my son, I've begotten you. Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All referencing and pointing to the Messiah. I'm going to show you something. And there's in Hebrews 7, if you want to flip the page and read along in your Bible, that's great. I thought about how best to explain this idea of why is Melchizedek important? Why is it that um, it, it's something to be talked about? Why should we go into it deeply? And the author of Hebrews uh, just does it so much more eloquently and better than I ever could. And so I want to use his words. Again, it's a, it, we're here for a Bible study. I'm going to read 28 verses with you, explain them very briefly. I'm really just going to, for the most part, read. And as we read through, understand this is just the author teaching. The author says, I need to make sense of it. This is kind of difficult. It's hard to explain. Let me explain it to you. And so um, in a couple of weeks, we'll have Pastor Michael teaching chapter six, but the author here, just he almost teaches it himself, chapter seven. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to read through it with you. Again, pausing briefly occasionally um, to make a couple sense, make sense of a couple things. It says here in verse one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, and he's referencing just this guy from Genesis 14 at this one time who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That should make sense to us after we understood the story. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was, first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. We looked at that. He's the Melech Sedek. He's the combination that his name means king of righteousness. And then he's also the king of Salem or the king in the Hebrew of Shalem, which is the same root as shalom. He's the king of peace. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. I want to start to show you what he's going to do here. He's going to take that, that tree that we looked at, and we saw how we had Aaron coming from the Levi line and Moses and the priest coming from that line, he's going to begin to make some really simple compares and contrasts between Melchizedek and that priestly line. He's comparing and contrasting to show that everything about Melchizedek is better than the priestly line in the Levitical system through the Aaronic system as well. Okay? So when he starts saying here, he's without father or mother, he, he, he's, he's timeless, if you will, because God's saying, hey, in Genesis 14, I literally just made him a, like, appear. I don't give you his background. You can't point the fact that he comes from this family and this tribe and this, 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 this. He doesn't have sons that came after him. You know, he's basically a timeless priest. I captured a perfect snapshot. You want to go to any one of the ironic priests, like Aaron himself and Moses, like, they've got a dad. They died. Their sons took over. 
He's like, no, it's not like that with Melchizedek. You can't just point to him dying and perishing and someone else taking his place. It doesn't work that way with him. Now observe how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Let's, okay, let's observe together. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. So what he's saying here, he's like, it's a pretty big deal when you're the priest that receives a tenth. When you get a tenth of stuff, it means people are giving you something. And he's kind of comparing that. He's saying, hey, so too did the Levites receive a tenth. They got a tenth. So, so both of them are pretty awesome. They're getting tithes. They're getting the things of the Lord that people are giving as offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. It's coming through this mediator, through the priests. So Melchizedek got it. So too did the Levites get it. But he's going to draw a big uh, separation in just a moment. We're going to go in verse 8. It says, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abram, or Abraham now, and blessed the one who had the promises. He's going to say, okay, it's one thing to receive a tenth. Receiving a tenth is a pretty big deal. But when you give blessings, just so you know, he says, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. What does that mean? The lesser is blessed by the greater. It means the greater passes down the blessing. Abraham passed it to Isaac, who passed it to Jacob. Well, in this case, you have Melchizedek passed it to Abram. And everybody after Abram was after Abram. So it literally like trickled downhill after that. But the greatest happened here from Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And so he's going to go back now to the tithes. So he's like, okay, you want to talk about tithes? I understand that as Hebrews, you're holding on to this Levitical system. You're having a tough time adapting to and quite understanding that Jesus is the high priest because you come from this, this system. But understand that that system is flawed when compared to Melchizedek as a high priest. And he goes on to explain it in this perfect system. It's a little bit of a mic drop here. He says, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it's witnessed that he lives on. Again, these guys are mortal. They, they came, they died. Seemingly, Melchizedek has no death recorded. We don't know what happened to him. And so to speak, he says, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. So he's saying, I get that you really love the idea that the Levites were important, they're part of that system, and they received tithes. But do you understand, because they were under Abraham, when Abraham paid a tithe, it's like these guys were still in Abraham's loins. Like when Abraham paid a tithe, it's as if the Levites themselves paid a tithe. And he's kind of like, do you see how this guy, like the tithes are being paid up from Abraham? This guy's the higher one. He's the better one. And he, that is the, the Levites, were still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on at the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? What he's saying here, perfection didn't come through the, the priesthood, didn't come from Aaron and the Levites. In fact, they brought the law. Now, the law was perfect, but the law was a tutor, a schoolmaster. It was a mirror that showed you that you are imperfect. The wake, if you will, of the law was that we are all sinners, that we all need a savior. We are broken beyond repair. So that's what the priestly system brought. It brought about a law, 10 commandments, plus 600 others that showed us that we are absolutely flawed. So he's kind of calling that's kind of a flawed system. Like the law brought about a bunch of broken people, showed them that they're sinners. So he's saying, wouldn't it be great if there's another priest 
that came along and made a better system that didn't leave behind broken people. When the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of like the idea of a new sheriff in town. <laughs> These Levites had this law. This priest over here is Melchizedek says, I'm bringing another law. And we know that simple law, as we, as we get expounded to us in, in the scriptures, we call it the law of love. John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment. These are Jesus' words, that you love one another just as I loved you. This is the command. There's no longer 10 plus 600. There's one. The command I give you, the law for you to follow, is simply love. Romans 13, 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The new lawgiver is bringing a new law. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, which is weird, one word, the statement, <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what he's saying is, here's a statement, but it includes the word that matters. It's just love. Quite simply put, it's love. And so again, when the priesthood's changed, of necessity that takes place, a change of law also, or a fulfillment of that law. That law was leading to brokenness. But someone came and fulfilled it. And that person's from the order of Melchizedek, he says, and that law is love. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. He's not from the Levi tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Again, Moses didn't talk about how that line of King David led to priests. Moses didn't talk about that. He's like, I'm declaring it to you now. God declared it in the Psalms. It was set up for you in Genesis as well, even in the beginning. And I'm declaring it, making sense of it to you now, that from Melchizedek comes Jesus, and he is the high priest forever. And he goes on. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. What he's simply saying is there, the physical requirement. You had to be born from Aaron's side to become priest. And here he's saying, no, it's indestructible life. I'm bringing to you the, the, the Savior, Jesus, who will live forever. It's not going to be someone who dies uh, and stays dead. No, it's going to come from a different and better way. And again, he quotes here the, the Old Testament, the same thing that we looked at earlier, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. For it's attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of, its weak, because, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Again, the law made nothing. The law left us broken. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for without, it's not without an oath, which means um, they were not sworn in. The Levitical priests were not one that, like, they, they again, they weren't running. For, no one took the honor to themselves. They didn't say, I, I'm running for office. I will, I will swear in. I want this job. No, you were just born that way. God's saying, I had a swearing in of this high priest. He says here, and he, and he, and he quotes where he did it. He says, for they indeed become priests without an oath, but he, with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, and this is Psalm 110, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Again, that's the 110, according to the order of Melchizedek. So God's saying, I swore this priest in. Y'all just became priests because, you know, someone died or you were born. He's like, there was an official swearing in. This is a better way. 
In verse 23, it says, the former priests, the former priests, this is again the Levitical system, the sons of Aaron, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So he's appealing to them. They would say, wow, there were so many of them. There were like hundreds and thousands of Levitical priests. There must be something to the numbers, right? Isn't there like power or isn't there um, importance in numbers? Jesus, on the one hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. No, like they didn't have to keep transferring. Jesus isn't going to keep transferring this priesthood to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. He holds the title and office for forever. And these are going to be, as we focus here, these, these yellow verses, I highlighted them. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Again, Hebrews 5 starts off with, you know, the priest that you had, they had compassion and empathy because they too were sinners, but they had to make sacrifices for themselves. He's making a direct contrast to that where he says, the high priest I'm talking about, Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, like the Levites and the Aaron priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself. There was not a need to keep daily sacrificing over and over and over again, and Yom Kippur and multiple animals and slayings and blood sprinklings. And he said it was done once and for all. It's a better way. Why? Because he, he's not just the high priest, not just the king. He's also the sacrifice himself. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And he's making the case for Christ. He's making the case for Jesus being the perfect, better high priest. We look back here, and we continue in verse 7, and the end of Hebrews 7 will make perfect sense to the end of Hebrews 5, these last couple of verses we're going to look at. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers in his, in his flesh. I mean, not, we don't think of that. We use that fle- the word flesh a little differently. Like I was in my flesh when I, you know, the guy cut me off in the 91. No, like when he walked on earth, in the days when Jesus was a human here on earth, um, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his uh, sincerity, because of his righteousness. Well, understand as I'm reading through these next couple of verses, it's referring to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's referring to the, the days preceding Jesus taking a cross. It's looking at that moment when Jesus was in the garden and he took his disciples with him. He says, hey, just wait here for a second. I'm going to go pray. It's, I think we read through those sections and we don't quite grasp it. You know, um, it says you know, here that it, it was crying and tears. Luke looks at it from a very um, physician-like perspective where it says drops of blood were coming out of his, his, his pores. He was that distressed. You remember what he's distressed about? He's distressed about the fact that he knows and has full sense and knowledge and certainty of the fact that in the next day to come, not only is he going to be betrayed by someone who he trusts and loves, and we know that that hurts. You ever been betrayed? The heart aches for that. But there's about to be this physical 
absolute horrible thing to happen to him. He's going to have a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He's going to be um, having uh, punched and beaten beyond recognition. He's going to have a cat of nine tails giving him stripes, ripping flesh off of his body. He's going to have carry a stupid, huge wooden cross for a mile up a hill. He's going to have nails driven through his wrists and his ankles for us. He's going to have the Father who has been in perfect fellowship for eternity pour out the cup of wrath upon him. That is the wrath of God towards all the sins of mankind because Jesus took the sins upon himself. When we say he died for our sins, it means the sins didn't disappear when you became Christian. The sins went unto Jesus and the wrath of God poured out upon those sins went unto him. That perfect fellowship was broken. God's wrath was poured out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out. He knows full well that is coming. The weight of one of those things be enough to break me. He's got to bear all of that. And he knows it's coming in the garden. It's starting to hit him like, oh man, I've had 30 plus years and, and, and it's tomorrow. And it is just so much the point. You know that at there's one point he says, my God, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Like, is there any other way? This is pretty severe. This is pretty, is there any other way, God? Father, please, that you can do some other way. Nevertheless, he says, not as I will, but as you will. When it talks in the next verse about learning obedience, that was it, through suffering. He was about to suffer. He cried out, is there any other way? But he said, no, not what I want. What is it you need me to do, Dad? And for the joy that was set before him, the joy of saving you and me and fellowshipping with us for eternity outweighed the just brutality, the forsakenness, all of that. And we read in verse eight, it says, although he was a son, he had to learn obedience from the things which he suffered. And then having come through it complete, having been made perfect, he passed with flying colors. Thank you, God. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That verse 9 is pretty deep. We're going to talk about that as we close in a little bit. It says, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I want to read to you a little bit of the garden. Again, this whole picture here is just the garden, the idea of learning obedience. Some of these verses I already um, spoke and talked about, but when you read them, the power's in the word. It's living and active. Let's look at it. Matthew 26, 36 says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and so said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Philippians 2 looks at another way, the obedience of, of death. It says, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even the death on a cross. For this reason... What's it all about? 
Why did he die on the cross? God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'll let you know that the emphasis of Hebrews 5 as it closes is absolutely the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's what Philippians points to, that the obedience of, of, of Jesus to take the cross, to listen to the Father's commands, the Son, I, I, I need you to build a bridge. The Levites were covering it up, some temporary at one minute with me, but no, I, I need a permanent bridge, a one-time-for-all-people bridge, and it's you, Son. I need you to take the cross. And in doing so, we look at that again, so that, not just he would save us, not that we'd have that fire insurance that, hey, our sins are removed, we're not going to hell, which is awesome in and of itself that we have a place in heaven, but that we would have him as our Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you look at that verse nine, it says, he became, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He is the source of salvation to all who obey. To all who cry out, Jesus is Lord, he becomes the Savior. That's what the scripture is saying. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's a 20th century missionary, S.M. Zimmer, kind of a, a hero of mine. He, he, um, he was a missionary to the Arabic world, uh, to the Middle East and to parts of Egypt and North Africa. He made a very famous phrase, uh, in a book that he wrote a long time ago, and he wrote, unless Jesus is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Amen? Unless he is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. What does that mean? It means if you've got areas in your life to which Jesus is not Lord, then he is not your Lord. If you've got things which you say, well, I came to Christ and I want all the things of salvation, like my sins removed, I would like to, I like fellowship, I like love. There are a lot of things that, yes, line up in my life that I want from the scriptures and Jesus is telling me to, to give and be kind and to love. Yes, I got all those things. But there's a passage in scripture here that I don't really necessarily agree with and so that's still mine. You have 99% of me, Lord, but I don't like what it says in regards to this. I don't like what it says when it regards to whatever it may be. And my prayer is the Holy Spirit minister to you what that might be. It's finances. Nah, they're mine. It's relationships. Nah, that, I, we can sleep together. It's okay. I don't have to listen to what the Bible says. I can have this type of lifestyle. I, don't, I know the Bible says it, but I've got some people who I know says it's not like that, and so I'm gonna listen to them, even though scripture's pretty clear. I wanna just do it this way, but I want everything else the scripture says. Unless he's Lord of all, he's not really your Lord at all. Is that famous? I invite the worship team to come on up. They're not up yet. There's this famous hymn that it just at my heart just strikes it out. It says, Jesus paid it all, and so it's to all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. And so I close by just asking you, Jesus is the perfect. He is the high priest. He is the king. 
He comes from the order of Melchizedek. And he did all of that. And he was obedient to the point of death on the cross that he would be your Lord and then thus your Savior. And I ask you, you know, for some of us, we come about it one way or the other, and that's fine. Some people come to Jesus by Lord, and then the Savior makes more sense to them. Some people come like me. I, I got saved first, and then I worked toward understanding the Lordship in my life. I think that's where we need to be. I think each of us a little bit more needs to understand Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, there's famous songs, Jesus take the wheel. What does that mean, Lord? And we'll develop that a little bit later next week. But when Jesus is Lord, it's his show. You get to cry out, yes, Lord. He says, do this, you do it. He says, don't do that, you don't do that. It's quite simple. And there's such a freedom in that. Some people find it, you look at somebody in the outside world will look at this and maybe comment and say, that seems so restricting. It seems, really? The law of love seems restricting? You can do whatever you want. Just go love people. I find it freeing. I find it wonderful. That is the best life. That is so much better than everything I had before Christ. And so it's my hope, my prayer, that you understand that the high priest, that is Jesus, he is the Savior, he is the Lord, that's who he is. Whether you make him that way, at some point, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's my hope, my prayer, that happens much sooner than later for all of us. Amen? Let's pray and close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, as the hymn says, you, you paid it all. It's my personal response and my prayer for the response of all of us in this room, Father, that we would then, it's all to you we owe. I, if there's any areas of our life, Lord, where you want to shine the spotlight, I pray that you would do that. If there's any area where we're just holding on to by our flesh that we haven't crucified, that we haven't picked up that cross daily and followed after you in some way, would you show us that? And there are some areas, Lord, I know with um, addiction and things that just have strongholds. And I thank you that you just break every chain. And so I pray, Lord, anybody who's just having trouble um, giving you areas, that you would just take it. Jesus, take the wheel. And so I just pray now, Father, that you would just help us. Some of these things I just think we're weak and we can't do it, but your words promises by faith that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us and you'll meet us right where, where we're at. And so that's my prayer, Lord. Any areas and any heart, show us where we can just turn things over to you and make you even more so just the Lord of our lives. We love you, Father. Thank you for sending Jesus, our perfect high priest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.